Today's Unorthodox is brought to you by Harry's. Please stop overpaying for a great shave and start the new year off right. You deserve to be smooth for less. Go to harrys.com and enter the code UNORTHODOX at the checkout for $5 off your first order. Welcome to Unorthodox, a weekly podcast from Tablet Magazine. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. Hello. And Senior Writer Leah Leibowitz. Boker Tovchavarim. <laughs> Indeed. Later in the Hummus. show... Hummus. Hummus. Later in the show, we'll be talking with guest Jew Mark Seidenfeld, who is Harry Potter's real-life lawyer, as we'll explain, and guest Gentile Alice Drager, historian of science and author of Galileo's Middle Finger. Yes, it's called Galileo's Middle Finger. We're not in North Carolina, where we were supposed to be, because Tropical Storm Jonas had his way with us. Is it a tropical storm? What was Jonas? I think it was a blizzard. Blizzard Jonas. Or was it a snowstorm? The, the Lord has, has smoten us, yes. smitten us. Yeah, we were smited. We, we were, were smited. smited. We're yeah, the yeah, belly of a large fish. So we are not in North Carolina, but we will be later this spring. We're sorry that we had to cancel our show at American Hebrew Academy. Uh, some news of the Jews? Please. Please. Uh, Ted Cruz has been endorsed by Pastor Mike Bickle pastor of the International House of Prayer. Yes, that's IHOP in Kansas City, Missouri. <laughs> Back in 2004, Pastor Mike said that Jews who don't accept Jesus will be murdered by the Lord. So you mean, he means Jews? <laughs> he means, right, exactly. He means basically all of us. Uh, because if we accepted Jesus, we'd be Christians. Um, he said, back in ought four, that the Lord would say to the Jews, I give them grace. And if they don't respond to grace, I'm going to raise up the hunters. And the most famous hunter in recent history is a man named Adolf Hitler. Ted Cruz posted news of this endorsement on his website. Bette Midler is going to play the all-time great Yenta Dolly in the forthcoming revival of Hello, Dolly. I, I do want to say about Bette Midler that the coolest thing I can say about my dad is that in the mid-70s, when I was a wee infant and we were living in New York City, he and his friend Levy used to go to the Continental Baths on heterosexual night to watch Bette Midler sing. That sounds so cool. Now, straight night, by the way, meant that it was like 5% straight. It was still 95% gay men surrounding my dad and his friend Levy, who, all of them wearing just their skimpy little towels, if that. But my dad's commitment to Bette Midler, he, he just didn't care. That's my dad. I respect that. Yeah. Israeli basketball coach David Blatt has been fired as coach of the Cleveland Cavaliers. Anti-Semitism. Boo! Stephanie, as our Cavaliers correspondent. Yeah, I'll, I'll take that title. Is this does, Should I care, not being an Israeli or a basketball fan? I think he was sort of like this exciting symbol that Israelis were like. I mean, it's, first of all, it showed that a coach in the Israeli leagues could make it in the NBA, could get to the NBA, which I think was exciting for a lot of Israelis. Also, it was really cool. But we have to remember that before he even got to Cleveland... LeBron returned. So basically, like, once he was there, everything was different. It was a different job than I think he thought he was taking on. And once LeBron came back, he really had no chance, right? Like, I think it's impressive he made it this long. It was, I think, the first coach ever to be fired from a number one seed team who's actually doing pretty well. <laughs> Is it having, anti-Semitism? Having, having the previous year, you know, gone all the way to the NBA championship. So, yeah, it is absolutely anti-Semitism. No, it is not anti-Semitism. Stephanie, how dare Maybe you? it's anti-Zionism. Maybe it's, it's yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. It is anti-Zionism. But my favorite part about this is it was like a, a Friday night news dump when they announced it. And so it was like 4.45 in New York, which meant it was like well into Shabbat in Israel. So like there were observant Jews who legitimately did not know that their like beacon of hope had been fired. There for, were like, also some non-observant Jews who took to the internet right away to uh, have some choice words <laughs> with, uh, with LeBron James. Um, also... Hillary Clinton's campaign has hired 35-year-old Sarah Bard, the wonderfully named Sarah Bard, as the campaign's Jewish outreach coordinator. Sarah Bard has good yichus, good uh, 
breeding credentials. Her father is a conservative rabbi in Boston, and she is now a Clintonista. They all get Jewish outreach coordinators, right? The White House has one, like an, an emissary to the Jews. Now the Clinton campaign has one. It always makes me wonder, do, why don't they have outreach coordinators to the Methodists or the Lutherans? Like, why, why is it that you need a special person to translate Jewish ways to the campaign? What but would the Lutheran outreach <laughs> look like? It would be Garrison Keillor. For Hello? <laughs> Are you good people? <laughs> Vote be... for Hillary. Thank you. Sorry for the disturbance. If the three of us decided this whole journalism slash podcasting thing wasn't working out and we wanted to start a boutique firm on outreach to the Jews. Respect of outreach to Jews. Yeah, yeah. We could we could make a mint, right? Like we actually we are Jewish journalists. So we, what I do, I do Republicans and you and Stephanie do. Uh, fine, I'll do millennials. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. Millennials and, and you I'll do, be the Lena Dunham yeah. of this shop. I do center left blue state latte sipping wusses. Yeah. Fantastic. Exactly. I mean, a popular Egyptian sex therapist named... He- <laughs> Named Heda Kutub made some waves recently in Egypt and beyond. Waves, I guess, on the Mediterranean coast of Egypt. For going on air and declaring that Jews are the most sexually perverse people ever. According to the Times of Israel, she said that our perversion is actually due to not having sex for pleasure. She said, quote, In Jewish thought, sex has to be for a reason. There are very strict rules among the Jews. It has to be done through a buffer, after sunset, without touching, and so on. (laughs) I love that she thinks we can have sex without actually touching. We just, we aim from across the room. (laughs) This is our outreach coordinator. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa, whoa, take it easy, guys. (laughs) Loved it. Nice. These restrictions, she says create a psychological imbalance that leads to our deviant behavior. So she never says what the deviant behavior is. and <laughs> She never says how we manage to have sex without actually touching. But apparently we are deeply repressed and perverse. Well, it's first of all kind of awesome to be lectured about sexual perversity by someone from Egypt, a country where 99.3% of women are sexually harassed. And I'm not making the statistic <laughs> up. It's actually 99.3%. Well, the important thing is they do it for pleasure there. They aren't repressing it. The They're way, not, exactly. The way we Jews do. When they when they grab a little ass, it's, it's for pleasure. It's, it's just it's, for fun. It's the healthy expression <laughs> of... Oh, my God. Well, my biggest issue with this is that there was some article that someone sent me was like, Egypt's Dr. Ruth says this, like, Jews are sexually perverse. And it's like, do not bring our patron saint, Dr. Ruth, into this. I can't believe they went. You can't bring her. You can't just be like, oh, this is their Dr. Ruth. It's like, it's not not cool. For shame. For shame. Dr. Ruth would not have any of this. And Dr. Ruth would say that Jews are actually prescribed to have sex for pleasure beyond uh, procreation. Is I think that one of the core tenets of it is. Do you know how college kids, like really, you know, dude, bro, douchey college kids, play this game of like coming no, up why? with? Well, Mark doesn't know because he went to Yale, but I'm talking to you, Stephanie, because <laughs> you went to a normal college. Like, come up with all these names for like these outrageous, like lewd sex acts, like yeah, the yeah. dirty Sanchez. Like, right. imagine what the version of this in Egypt is. <laughs> You know, there is the fiduciary Felix, which is when the man takes out his large, big pencil and then does the federal and state taxes for the woman. These are the Jewish. These are the <laughs> Jewish <laughs> sex acts. Say what you will about Israel. You can tell me if I'm wrong here, right? For all of its crimes, I don't think they spend a lot of time talking about how Egyptians have sex. No, <laughs> not, not a topic of consideration. Like growing among, these, among the young, among the young. Hey, Unorthodox fans, we have a deal for you. We've been getting a lot of inquiries about how you bring us out to do a live show. I don't know why you want us to go do a live show. I don't know why you want us so badly. But a lot of you apparently do. And we have a lot of these shows scheduled. And people are wondering, how do we 
in our community, at our Jewish community center or synagogue or university or local federation? How do we get unorthodox to our community to do a live show? And we have a new deal for you. If you can get 100 people in your community to subscribe to our print magazine, the tablet print magazine, we will come out to your area for free and do a live taping of Unorthodox. If If you buy 1,000 subscriptions, I will cook you dinner and sing. (laughs) There you go. If you buy 2,000, I won't sing. Right. If you buy 3,000, I'll bring one of my daughters, and she will sing. If you buy 4,000, I'll bring my cat. Oh, wait, no, 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 that's not how it works. (laughs) This just got very, very real. But but really, if you buy 100 subscriptions to the tablet print magazine, we will come to wherever you are and do a live taping of Unorthodox. If you're interested in this deal and how it works, send an email to unorthodox at tabletmag.com, and we will get right back to you. A little more news of the Jews. Mike Bloomberg has formed a committee to explore entering the race for president, which means, theoretically, that we could end up with a campaign between a capitalist New York billionaire Jew and a Vermont socialist Jew and, God willing, a crazy guy who isn't Jewish but who has grandkids who are. That's Donald Trump. That sounds like like every synagogue you go to. (laughs) Every reform synagogue, right? There's there's the intermarried guy over there. There's the rich guy there. There's the socialist lefty guy there. The schlub over there. They're all screaming at each other. (laughs) Um... I, for one, think it'd be great if Bloomberg entered the race. Like, at this point, I feel like the wackier the race, the better. Yeah, I mean, I think all bets are off. I agree. Um, I think it's hilarious that we could get, like, two Jews in the race, and people, like, still aren't really excited about any of them. Well, these guys aren't so Jewish. They're not. They just happen to be Jewish, which maybe maybe it shows where we are, where it's not like you're the Jewish candidate. You're the candidate who happens to be Jewish. Uh, So, look, about Bloomberg, I'm going to reveal a bias here. This is is not going to win any fans. I thought he was a great mayor for New York City. I really loved him and I think he should be mayor of New York City for life. Uh, but 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 here's the thing. Um, Abraham Lincoln, six foot four. George Washington, six foot three. Thomas Jefferson, six foot two. Do you see a pattern? See what I'm saying here? That we used, like, before we ate foods with, like, really bad stuff and then we were I, I, really I'm tall? I'm saying that I'm, I'm not very comfortable having a very short person. Says the man who's, how tall are you, 6'5"? I'm 6'5", so, you know, fuck it. <laughs> how tall is Bloomberg? Bloomberg is, I think, 4'3". <laughs> so, I'm just saying, it's a leadership role. That seems very heightest of you. I know. It totally I'm is. This is I a think complete, it's 2016. It's a complete bias that I'm not willing to let go of. Because you, know, you think, when, like, when, if he shakes hands with, like, Vladimir exactly. Putin. When the G8 or, happens, I want to look at all these world leaders, and they're like, you see this enormous guy? That's our guy. And it's going to be Donald Trump, and that is not going to be good for anyone. That's also very true. <laughs> is he tall? I don't know how tall Donald Trump is. But, you know, Leo, you and I have never really had this out. When you look at me in all my five foot seven and three quarter splendor without my heels on, do you think, like, I'm, I'm talking to a short guy? Well, I, you know, I don't really tell difference. In, like, to, to me, you're all. Like, I could be six ants. foot. Could... Like, all of you are so small. It doesn't even matter. What Wait, do I you're know? Six, you're six three? Five eight or six or five two. There's no distinction beneath this So basically, this level it's of... you and everyone else. Yeah. Oh, and me and, you know, a bunch of other you know, privileged, privileged people and, and the rest of you, you know, scurrying close to the ground. So there you have it. Liel would vote for Bloomberg for God if only he were over 6'2". You know, he's a great, great guy. Mike Bloomberg, come on down. Join. First of all, come on to our podcast. We He should announce his candidacy oh, yeah. on our podcast and we will be his Jewish outreach coordinators. I will say this. Michael Bloomberg, sir. If you announce your candidacy on our podcast, we would uh, we would for free uh, be your shills uh, for the rest of the campaign. Totally, <laughs> totally. We will be your spokesperson. Absolutely, absolutely. Height or no height. Height or no height.
Our Jewish guest today is Mark Seidenfeld. Mark, you're laughing, Mark. You've never been introduced as the Jewish guest before. I have never been introduced as the <laughs> Jewish guest. But you knew no. that was going to happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't know. This is like, you know, the pinnacle of it all this for is, This yeah, is very exciting. You're peaking. How old are you? <laughs> 52. At 52, you're peaking. It's all, <laughs> tomorrow's the downhill slide starts. And I'm peaking on unorthodox. You're peaking right it's now. Truly a Mazel tov. Mark is the deputy general counsel at Scholastic, the publishing house responsible for... You know it, Harry Potter, The Hunger Games, and lots more stuff that children and grown-ups who can't grow up read. Since Harry Potter book three, part of Mark's job has been flying to Scotland whenever J.K. Rowling is finished with her man. Is this true, Mark? Is this really true? I've had to go and pick up the manuscript. Oh, my yeah. God. Flying to Scotland. I'm given this copy. I don't know. It's like you could be totally full of it. But <laughs> to, uh, Whenever J.K. Rowling is finished with her manuscript, Mark flies to Scotland, receives it, securely... Tra- <laughs> Securely transports it back to New York, um, which you do by literally sitting on the manuscript on the flight back home, I'm told. Um, You then also have the general job of making sure that the Harry Potter books have not leaked before the official launch date. So you essentially, for a lawyer, a boring job, you have the coolest version of it in the world. Um pretty lucky. I mean, it's definitely not just all me. It's a huge team. No, no, it's all you. This all... It's all you. Let's <laughs> let's be honest. It's all you. You're the one lawyer at Scholastic. Uh, oh, yeah. There's no other lawyers. No other lawyers. Right. Sure. I'm the only lawyer at Scholastic. Right, now, right, 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 right. how did you get your job? Is at there the... a truth requirement? <laughs> no. Absolutely no. not. Okay, just checking. So just checking. How, how do you get a job? So at the interview, is do they quiz you on your knowledge of Clifford the Big Red Dog? Like, how does that go exactly? <laughs> Um, wow. What if you hated kids? Would you still have your job? Uh, probably not. Definitely not. I think you gotta, you gotta be a certain type to work at Scholastic. And I think, uh, you know, I always joke that you don't, you're not going to retire rich and young by becoming a publishing lawyer, but, uh, (laughs) I am really happy, which is really pretty amazing. You know, my kids, I, have been there over 20 years now and, uh, I have 20 year old twins, um, and a 13 year old and, um, they were born literally a few months before I started Scholastic. So they basically grew up while I was at Scholastic. And it's just amazing. I mean, you know, the kids, <laughs> the children's literature, the like, all of that, it's meaningful. It, so you never had to actually pay for one of your children's presents ever, basically. <laughs> like, you just, just go to the office and you just them. go you know, to I the s- warehouse. I just... saw you smiling and laughing as I was talking. I'm like, he's definitely going to come out. Mark, Mark has four girls. So, but before we, we talk about any of the other cool stuff that you do, uh, take us, take us to that scene. So it's Scotland, <laughs> you know. You've just, you've just flown over. Mark Seidenfeld, how, how are you? How does this work? <laughs> Is there like a phalanx of bodyguards, you know, with Large, you at the top? Red hair. Is there like a big briefcase? Scottish. Is there like a you know That's armored car? Hand. How does it work? Are there handcuffs involved? Okay, there, are, there are. Are there handcuffs involved? He asks, actually, Mark asks that, that of is, every guest. It's yeah, not just you. Not really, just the, I, I, won't, I won't ask why you asked that question where that's coming from. You know, it's time. like, do they cuff but you to the briefcase? To... It, it's, suffice to say, it's different every time. And um, there was actually one time where we actually went over with a... This wasn't to pick up the manuscript, but to pick up um, the first signed copy of the book. I forget which one it was. I think it was book four. But uh, I went over with somebody else. It was definitely, you know, sort of off the radar screen. And we literally had a case and um, a lock on the case. (laughs) And literally it was one of these deals where it was kind of handcuffed to my wrist more for video that we were shooting for PR afterwards than anything else. But uh, 
it was really under, quite literally under lock and key that time. All right, on so the way over. The flight from Scotland to New York is what, like seven hours, six something and a half like, hours, yeah, something like. Now, what if you have to go to the bathroom? Exactly. <laughs> at some point, you have you know, nature does call. What what, what do you do with that thing? Overhead compartment. Like, do not bring it into the bathroom. You say you're going to the bathroom. Yeah, you say to the old lady next to you, could, could you just <laughs> watch this? <laughs> I got to go pee. Could, could you just watch this for me? All right, suffice it to say that the manuscript never left my possession. <laughs> so you took it into the bathroom? So gross. The greatest I'm bathroom not, reading of all time. I'm not going into any more details on that one. Now, meanwhile... But, uh, Meanwhile, your kids, they're, okay, the twins are 20. They essentially, when did the first Harry Potter come out? Uh, first one came out in 98. 90. Okay, so essentially their childhood was coincided yeah. with your job guarding. Right, I mean, they, they basically grew up right. through my time at Scholastic, which was amazing. So you're, you're, you're the first person in the universe after J.K. Rowling to see this manuscript. No, let, let, just not, go with my story. Just go with my story. <laughs> don't, don't confuse my they're story with facts. They're not listening over at Scholastic. Right. Really? So... Yeah, what, you, whatever happened to that disclaimer about right. these are my own personal about views, these, these, uh, and, you know, not the views of Scholastic? Or retweets are yeah, endorsements. Right. So duly noted, duly okay. noted. But yeah. Do you give your kids a peek? Absolutely not. Oh, come on. Oh, come on. What kind of father are This is like... I'm a horrible father. Do, do you, all, you think your therapist doesn't tell his wife what you said? I mean, spousal, within the family, it's okay. That doesn't count. Actually, nobody knew. That you had it? Yep. Your wife? Really? Nope. You didn't tell your wife? Nope. What, what were you doing what were you doing in Scotland? Those were my I air wasn't quotes. In, as far as my family <gasps> knew, I wasn't in Scotland. What? Mark, if I ever want to commit some sort of horrible crime and need like a conciliary, <laughs> I think I just found the absolute perfect. This is unbelievable. Well, y'all can get you the Israeli working, government. Yeah, why aren't you working for the government? Forget <laughs> <laughs> Scholastic. Where did your wife Man. think you were? Um, another place. <laughs> Julie wants to know our producer Julie wants to so you basically told her you were just you were okay you caught me I was sleeping with another woman yeah. no <laughs> which no, is no, much no. more she, acceptable she ne- I mean look at me she never would have believed that oh, <laughs> her name like, is on. JK just kidding Joanne but, uh, Joanne right Joanne Rowling uh, yes Joanne yes. you really didn't your wife didn't know where you'd gone nope I'm gonna be I'm gonna I'm gonna be honest here I'm gonna take it I'm gonna take it to a serious note that's interesting to me because I couldn't keep that secret from my wife it's, I think it either says something about your character being really great or the quality of your marriage being a little bit shaky. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. That, like, no, how, are really, you, no. how are you lying uh, in bed to this woman? I'm you've, really glad I came in early to be insulted like you've this. You've just made enjoying... love to the most beautiful woman in the world, your wife. You're right. lying there next to her. She right. says, now, where are you going on your trip tomorrow? You say, yeah. the Caymans to a bank. <laughs> You know, Mark, gen- generations of, you know, humanity uh, progressing depended on, on subterfuge such as this. Look, you get, so you God got, bless you, Mark Seidenfeld. Yeah, I don't, well, I, don't, I don't know about that. It's really for the protection of everybody around me because I don't want anybody to know anything. <laughs> if they capture or, your wife, she could honestly <laughs> exactly. say under something, torture. <laughs> you know what? Something slips at a party. Something slips, you know, in a on conversation. The playground. Can you yeah. And those quite girls? frankly, that literally happened more recently with an attorney in the U.K., who happened to tell his wife something that he wasn't supposed to say in connection with the Harry Potter with Joe Rowling, and uh, his wife slipped at a cocktail party, and it came out, and uh, he ended up losing his job, and it uh, very much so affecting his career. So it really is something on my brain. All right, so to, to, to shift gears here, the, the yeah, books do come you. out. 
I'm like stressing over this, like this sub. <laughs> the books do come out, and, and then actually the stress really begins for you, right? Because yep. now you know millions of people have physical copies. People in their actually hands, know about it, right? Because that you need to the stores to have the copies yep. before before the release date, because uh, J.K. Rowling insisted on a universal yep. release date for everyone. So now you have to protect, you know, hundreds of thousands of people from leaking the book prematurely, uh, both online and in, in bookstores. Right? How does that happen? Um, it is truly a team effort. It's a con- it's a combination of things. I think it's a lot of people working logistics, uh, working operations who are out there in warehouses who are figuring out timelines of when we can distribute things. You guys stop me and tell me when I'm boring the hell. Do you hire? Talking about do you stuff. hire detectives? Um, we had resources that we used in <laughs> different classes. <laughs> That's a fabulous euphemism. We had. We had research. Did you hire guards to beat up the union? Th- <laughs> did you hire thugs to beat up the, the project? We had no thugs. Nobody, nobody was hurt in the process. Right. Um, look, it got crazy at certain points. Okay. I mean, literally in the UK, guns were drawn at one point when there was supposed to be a drop off that somebody had stolen. I think it was on book five. Somebody had stolen the book. And there was literally, they were setting up like a drop where they were going to switch the book. <laughs> and I know it's crazy. And guns were drawn. And the police were called in. I mean, there were tabloids who, you know, I, there was somebody who planted somebody within the security at one of the warehouses months in advance. And that person was able to get there. You know, there's stuff that happened that you're really nervous about. So we worked very closely with all of our vendors from printers, manufacturers, the bookstores. And amazingly, they are really into it also. They want to keep the magic. They want to keep the secret. I mean, you guys may laugh and it may sound a little bit trite, but people really cared about kids having that magical moment at midnight on the release of the party. We, you know, had campaigns I'm... of keep the magic and Walmart had its employees, you know, take an oath mm-hmm. that they were going to help keep the magic. I mean, people really got into this. And quite frankly, you know, our biggest at one of our best frontline people helping us out were each of the stores. If one of their competitors broke and sold the book early, they were the first ones running to the phone and letting us know. Diming them out? Totally. (laughs) Totally. This is so insane. Cutthroat world of children's publishing. So this gives me hope about publishing, about children reading, about books, about actual hardcover books. Does it, I mean, does it speak to larger trends, do you think, in the industry? I think it's true. I mean, one of the most amazing things about it is that when you have really good literature come out that kids are into, that parents are into. It's it's an amazing thing. I mean, I still talk about this, and I've been in class for over 20 years. The most amazing moment of my career has nothing to do with really, you know, a legal brief, a memo, a contract, anything like that. It is being, it is being at the midnight parties for Harry Potter, and the parent is literally still paying for the book at the cash register, and the kid, their child, has dropped to the floor and has cracked open the book, reading it before they're even done paying for it. It's amazing. So I think it does speak to a great trend. I think that print books are still a big chunk of what is out there. You know, e-books are still popular, but if anything, stabilizing, and if anything, waning a little bit, um, especially in the children's book area, I think that print books, I mean, think about a picture book and, you know, that lap experience of reading to your child with a print book in your lap. I mean, I think, I think that's still really engaging for people and really meaningful for people. Two final questions for you. First of all, do you like sure. to read? Love to read. You do. What do you read? Anything to recommend? Anything good right now? Um, anything right I, now? I'm putting um, you on the spot. Yeah, you are putting me on the spot, but that's okay. Actually, one of my I, I love a few fiction books that I read not that long ago. Um, Once We Were Brothers, um, The Paris Architect. I thought those were two great books. I really enjoyed those. Okay. And number two, do I look like Daniel Radcliffe? 
knew this was coming. I get this a lot. Mark's frustration, he you know, with the whole Harry himself. Potter enterprise only comes from the fact that he was not selected uh, to portray <laughs> Harry in the movies. That's it. I was going to say George Clooney, but yeah, I see, you. <laughs> okay. I see Daniel Radcliffe there. Mark Seinfeld, you're our best guest ever. <laughs> thank you for being on. Thank you for being our Jew. Thanks a lot, guys. All I right. really appreciate it. Hey, we have a request to make of you unorthodox listeners. We need your help. For our upcoming Valentine's Day show, we want to invite a couple of you on to help you find love. These should be, by the way, a couple of you who have not already found love. We're not we're not matchmaking for people who are into polyamory or We're not AshleyMadison.com. <laughs> right, we're not we're not helping you go outside your current stable relationship. But if you are not currently in a relationship and you would like to be, we want to help you. So before Valentine's Day 2017, before next year's Valentine's Day, we are going to make shidduchs for two of you. Uh, and the way we're going to do it is have you on a show this Valentine's Day. We're going to learn a little bit more about you. We're going to put the call out. We're going to work our major Jew mojo. We're going to work lots of channels and we're going to find you love. And we're going to work on this project throughout the year. We will not rest until we have gotten until you. Until every single one of our listeners is in a happy uh, satisfying relationship with non-perverse sexual satisfaction. That's right. Like just like the three of us, in a happy, content, not mon- with each other, monogamous, <laughs> right, vanilla, <laughs> stable relationship. So, if you want to come on our show in a couple weeks and be our mm, victims, no, be the beneficiaries of our romantic largesse, send an email or a voice memo to unorthodox at tabletmag.com, and you have to answer two questions. Number one, tell us about yourself, your name, where you're from, and Anything else about yourself that makes you interesting, we keep that open-ended. You should decide. And number two, tell us what you're looking for in a partner. Okay? One and two. If it's a voice memo, make it not longer than a minute. If it's an email and we're going to have to read it for you, we're going to edit it down to about a minute. So keep that in mind. Send those to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Do not follow up with us. We will follow up with you if we think that you are worthy of being one of our lucky two unorthodox listeners to get the matchmaking services of Stephanie, Liel, and Mark in the next year. Okay, shaving is not optional for me. Every once in a while, I think maybe I'll grow a beard, and then I do. But there are two problems. First of all, it gets incredibly itchy, and I'm a real wuss when it comes to the itchiness. Second, all four of my daughters hate it. It used to be that only one daughter hated it, then it was two, then three. All four of them, even the two-year-old, say, Daddy, that looked bad. So the last time I tried growing a beard, it was over Christmas break. Within a week, they had forced my back up against the wall, had to shave. So I was back to shaving, which I do six days a week ever since I was a junior in high school. And for that entire time, that has meant the expensive Gillette razors. Even as a teenager, I just, the the disposables, they cut my face up. I'm a very sensitive person, spiritually and physically. So I was buying the expensive refillables, uh, which means if you're an expensive Gillette refillable purchaser guy like me, that an eight count is like $25. It's just insane. 
So I was actually very pleased that our new sponsor is Harry's. Harry's Razors, you might have seen their ads. They do a lot on Facebook, a lot on social media. They might have been embedded for you. Uh, They're at harrys.com. And whereas with Gillette, the 8-count is $25, the Harry's 8-count is only $15. And they mail it to you every couple months. They, they, They magically know when you're out of refillable cartridges. Your starter kit is even free. Uh, And then after that, $15 for every eight count. But here's the thing. They're even better than the Gillette's. Um, The handle is better. It's nicer. It's prettier. It's smoother. The blades are better. And the shave gel that they send you is also really, really, really terrific. They're German engineered, but most of their products are made in the USA. And they're made by the same people who do the Warby Parker eyeglasses line. So if you know those eyeglasses, then you know them already. I'd encourage you to go to harrys.com. Enter the code UNORTHODOX to take an extra $5 off your first order. Again, that's UNORTHODOX. You can do the free trial, but if you choose to order from the start, you enter UNORTHODOX, save an extra $5, and you too can be very, very smooth for a lot less money. That's harrys.com. And now, our world-famous feature, Gentile of the Week. This week we have a Gentile who, she grew up on Long Island, so her Gentile status is is questionable, but she assures us that there's no Jew in her. Uh, Alice Dreger, do you say Dreger? I do. I didn't assure you there's no Jew in me. I'm from Poland. There's probably some. Oh, there's probably some. Alice Dreger is a historian of science, uh, one of Dan Savage's favorite go-to experts when he has sexuality questions, and the author of the new book, Galileo's Middle Finger. Alice lives in East Lansing, Michigan, with her husband, her son, and her pet rat. Hi, Alice. Hi. How's the rat doing? Is the rat thriving? Well, he's two years old now, so he won't live very much longer, but he's doing great. That's so sad. Yeah, no, it is sad, but on the other hand, you don't weep hysterically like you do with a dog that you've gotten to know for 15 years. So um, what's sadder is our backyard is full of dead rats buried with little stones all over the place. So if we ever sell the house, we're going to, I guess, have to take the tombstones. Otherwise, people won't buy the house. <laughs> but, keep, but definitely keep the rats in there. <laughs> what's the rat's name? This rat is called Darling because my son said, call him what you're really going to call him. Because I always make up nicknames for all the rats. It drives my son crazy. (laughs) So I looked at him and I said, then his name is Darling. So he's called Darling. Alice, have you ever considered maybe just a puppy? You know, my husband's allergic to dogs and cats. So we uh, had rats recommended to us, which I thought I would never become fond of. But they're awesome, awesome animals. They're super smart, really social, very sweet. And they can, you know, be carried around and on your shoulder or in your pocket or in your shirt, which I do. This guy is known as my third boob because I wear a sports bra that's slightly too big and he sits in the center. (laughs) It takes a lot to leave us speechless, Alice. (laughs) People think there's no advantage to the fact that when you get older, your breasts tend to go east and west, but this is an advantage because you can stick a rat rat pocket. (laughs) It's a perfect rat pocket. Um, What is Galileo's middle finger about? I've read it and I think it's, Terrific. Um, but when you have to, the, the, you know, the chapters are fairly discrete episodes. And when you have to sum up what the book's about, what do you say? I sometimes say it's a memoir of other people's lives. <laughs> it's, uh, it's about 20 years of trying to figure out the relationships between researchers and activists, because I'm sympathetic to both of them, and I've been both of them. So it's an attempt to sort of figure out how do we protect people who search for justice and how do we protect people who search for truth, particularly when they go after each other. What do we do in those circumstances? So it's um, in many ways, it's a defense of the importance of research in America as something that's critically important to the democratic process. Can you say something about the research you've done in uh, with trans people and how that blew up into one of the big controversies that that you were involved in? 
Yeah, most of the work I did there um, is actually historical. And so I had been working in intersex rights, which is when people are born with body types that are not standard male or standard female. Often the genitals are in between or some other part is in between. Um, and I'd worked on that for 10 years, but then I was wrapping that up, I thought, and I got into doing a history of a controversy over transgender, which involved a researcher at Northwestern um, who had supported an idea that transgender isn't just about gender, it's also about sexual orientation, which is very controversial. And so they went after him. And I thought that when I did that history, it was going to be kind of a he said, she said story of misunderstanding. But what I found was that they had actually filed false charges against him and set him up because they didn't want him supporting an idea that was politically unpalatable to them. So that kind of shocked me. And then they came after me, which was very unpleasant. And so I ended up uh, doing this book, which was sort of an attempt to dig myself out of this hole and figure out what happens when researchers get attacked by political identity activists. And what can we do to sort of prevent that situation, but also what can we do to make sure we don't harm activism in the effort to protect researchers? And your research into their research, this is all several years in the past now. And since you've done that and since your book has come out, there's been this enormous attention to to trans issues, I mean, on television and in the popular culture. Um, has that been good for people's understanding of it, for a sort of careful, rigorous understanding of trans identity, or has it just muddied the waters even more? I don't think it's been good for understanding of the issues that go into the transgender experience, but it has vastly improved people's rights. And so that's been a really great thing. Um, you know, it's one of those situations which often happens in America as well as other cultures where stories get simplified and the political outcome is good, but the stories are oversimplified. So it's been frustrating to me for, to some extent because I think people think that transgender is the simplistic thing and everybody either is or isn't it and that everybody is simply born with one gender. And if you just let them speak, they'll tell you which gender they are. And gender is actually much more complicated than that. So it, the reality of it all is that um, there's there's a lot more nuance, a lot more variation among folks who feel gender nonconforming or who feel transgendered. And so all that gets lost. And that's particularly dangerous when it comes to kids, because people think that if a girl says she's a boy at the age of three or five, then, then that's the truth. But in fact, kids vary tremendously. And most kids who express cross-gender identity don't end up persisting in it. So it's really muddied the waters, particularly for um, clinical groups, particularly for the pediatric groups. Alice, this gender, uh, you know, fluidity that that you talk of—I don't even know if that's the right term—but uh, it, it has been obviously the locus of of many sort of public policy fights. Is there a particular policy, based on your research, that you think we desperately need, uh, but for some reason, political or other, is just not going to happen? Well, it, I think, and I, you know, I've been arguing this for ten years. It's time for the state to get out of the business of telling people what gender somebody is. So there's not really a reason for us to have to say on our driver's license or even you know on our marriage forms or anything else what gender we are. And I think it's time for the state to stop regulating what gender you are. If you want to now legally change your gender, you have to legally go through a system, but I don't see why you should have to. Certainly, scientifically, it's important to track sex in terms of birth rates and that sort of thing. And certainly in terms of your medical situation, it's important to know what parts you have, anatomy and physiology. So I don't have any problem with maintaining gender in our culture and maintaining um, sex research or anything like that. But I don't think that at this point in our history, we need to have the state indicating on our passports what gender we are. Um, and that we do leads to the sort of situation you get where trans people are very much harassed and bullied and intersex people, too, when they go through TSA and their genitals don't match with the, the letter is on their passport. And they end up being, you know, humiliated 
marked, sometimes endangered in those situations. I just, I just think at this point we should recognize that gender is about self-identity and we don't need the state to, to identify who's who. That sounds so radical, and yet I can't really come up with any reason that you're wrong. <laughs> I know. I have the same problem. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the, That's what I often get called. Surprisingly reasonable. Surprisingly reasonable. I feel like the, the, the battle between activists and researchers is so much a part of our society right now. And I, am, I ascribe a lot of that to the Internet. And I was wondering if you feel the same. Like, the Internet is a place where activists can really come together and do good, but also there's, like, this bullying element that happens online. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, it's it's a great democratizing force. There's no question about that. And certainly working within the intersex rights movement, which started just as the Internet was coming into being, the reason the intersex rights movement could happen was because of the Internet. The phenomenon we're talking about is rare enough that those people would not have been able to easily find themselves and organize without an Internet. So there's no question that the Internet makes possible all sorts of rights movements that have been incredibly important. Gay marriage would never have been approved as quickly without the Internet. So it's been incredibly helpful. But, yes, the dark side of empowerment is that people end up essentially putting forth what they want to have be true, not what is true. People get used to confusing news and commentary and research as all being the same thing. And you end up in these situations where simply through people making the same claim over and over again, the assumption is that it's true. And that's very harmful to researchers whose work is maligned and misrepresented, which happens all the time now. My work gets maligned and misrepresented all the time. For example, I'm constantly told that I'm against transgender rights. And then people will look up what I've actually written and they'll say to the people who say that about me, where does she say that? And they'll point them to pages that I have not written to prove that I'm somehow anti-trans rights. So it becomes extremely exhausting and confusing. And a lot of researchers simply don't want to deal with the public anymore as a consequence, which is a terrible situation because we really need them to engage. I think a lot of people listening to us right now might have this question saying, you know, things like gender, uh, you know, these have been social constructs that have been accepted uh, and unquestioned for quite some time, um, perhaps millennia. Uh, and it seems that the rate of change uh, and development uh, in these in these uh, realms uh, is very, very rapid to an extent that even some people who may not have a problem, you know, otherwise with with some of these prescriptions uh, may find just too jarring. So wh- what do you say to that? Well, I just want to make perfectly clear that I don't think gender is going to go away. I think we're going to continue to have mostly two genders in our culture because that's based on mostly two sexes in biology. And so I don't have any problem maintaining gender. But um, let me kind of turn the question around. You don't need the state to tell you you're Jewish, right? And and the state doesn't put on your passport that you're Jewish. Not not if we're lucky. <laughs> Which is a good thing. Right. Right, exactly. And I think we can think about gender the same way, that it has something to do with our biological history, our personal history, our psychology, our culture. All these kinds of things come together to create identity, but we don't need the state to indicate to us who's who. People can tell us themselves who's who. They can sort themselves out. They can self-identify when they wish to and not self-identify when they're in a dangerous situation for that sort of thing. So, you know, I think gender will persist, just like I think Judaism will persist, Jewish identity will persist. If we're Catholic lucky. identity will persist, <laughs> right, exactly. You know, all these kinds of things will persist in the world because of history and culture and the way family groups work and the way self-identity works. But we don't really need the state mediating who's who in that way. There are some things I think it makes sense for the state to mediate in terms of identity. For example, age. I think age is a good one for the state to keep track of because that way we don't have, for example, children being married off when they're too young to do so. 
we have a situation where people over a certain age are given certain privileges because they're now retired or able to retire. So some of the state regulation makes sense to me, but gender doesn't seem to me to be something the state needs to keep regulating. Surprisingly reasonable. I can't believe she played the Jew card on us. She's like, you want the Jews to survive? (laughs) Keep the state out of it, just like they should keep it out of gender. Alice, uh, you have a world-recognized, rabbinically selected panel of Jewish experts here. Do you have any questions as a Gentile woman for us? Yeah, so I'm somebody, because I've worked a lot on genital rights, circumcision bothers me a lot, so I'm not going to ask you to get into the circumcision debate, but I wanted to ask you what happens to all the foreskin that gets cut off during circumcision. And I know in the hospital what happens is it goes in a red bag, but what happens when it's happening with a moil outside a hospital? Rabbi Butnick? I think no one's ever called me that. Um, so I do think you're right. I think most... A lot of these days, a lot of like doctors do the circumcisions in the like a lot of moils are doctors. So I think they do get disposed as medical waste. But um, I think a lot of moils, moilim, bury foreskin in the ground. And why do you think okay, that, and Stephanie? That's a traditional thing to do. Yeah, I, Stephanie, on what grounds do you think that? Well, I, I emailed my boyfriend's dad, whose dad was a, a cantor and a moil, and he says he said that they bury them in the ground. And that's all I need. I phoned a friend. You phoned a friend. Is there a little tombstone? So if you exactly if, if <laughs> you right if you were Jewish and had a son, then you know those rat cemeteries. Yeah, I wonder. Yeah, there's probably like a company. A foreskin cemetery somewhere. And see, you know what? We're going to get a lot of emails answering this question, Alice, and we're going to get back to you next week. I mean, I, I take Stephanie's answer as strong, but next week we're going to make it definitive. Yeah, as like we, we want to know where it is. Yeah, like we're going to crowdsource, like where's the mass grave of foreskins, okay? <laughs> By the way, are you wearing a rat right now? No, you know what? Because I didn't want him wiggling and making noise on the phone for you. And also sometimes they, um, I forget what the term is for it, but they grind their teeth when they're happy. And when he's in my, these days because it's winter, when he's in my vest, he gets very happy because he's warm. So he starts grinding his teeth and you would have listened to him grinding his teeth because it's a happiness noise. So, Alice Dreger, author of Galileo's Middle Finger, thank you for being on an Orthodox. Thanks for having me. We had some amazing mail this past week. A Gentile with the awesomely Gentile name of Brandon Masterman wrote to ask, among other things, if we could have more queer Jews on the show. And my answer is, yeah, baby, we will. He also strangely but wonderfully wrote, as a former competitive fencer, I was delighted to hear that Stephanie fenced varsity for Duke. My friend Dana went to Duke to fence on the women's varsity foil team, and I was curious if the two overlapped. I checked, and oddly enough, Dana started on the Duke team the year after Stephanie left. So... I began to wonder if Duke fencing has a secret one Jew policy for their varsity squad in order to limit the number of chosen fencers competing, unquote. He's on to you. This is the best email that we've ever received. That is awesome. Is there one Jew at a time on the Duke fencing team? The bulk of, at least at Duke, the bulk of our fencing team came from either Long Island or like Morristown, New Jersey, where public schools have fencing teams. So... Yeah. It's all Jews. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely a few Jews. More than one Jew at a time. Robert Ludwig, MD, was one of the many readers who wrote in about our segment with Rebecca Vilcomerson of Jewish Voice for Peace. He wrote, quote, I was very disappointed in this interview with Rebecca Vilcomerson that you aired. The BDS movement is so clearly anti-Semitic in effect, if not in intent. In the same vein, Elihu Smith wrote, Jews for Peace are really Jews for the destruction of Israel. On the other side, Brian from Manhattan wrote in to say, 
a Mike Albo, Rebecca Vilcomerson double feature? I thought I was dreaming. When you consider your target audience, clearly you are considering me. Thank you. P.S. Yes, gay Jews are good in bed. Finally, Robin Probst wrote in from Sweden, because we got listeners in Sweden, yo, to tell me that I'm not funny, to say that Liel is rude, and to say that Stephanie rocks. Robin wrote, thanks, Stephanie, for being the beacon of reason and compassion on the show. Do we have any Mazel Tovs of the week, Liel? Stephanie, go first. So my first Mazel Tov is for me for getting such awesome mail and also for changing the filter on my Brita water pitcher for the first time in about two years. So I feel really good about that. My second Mazel Tov is to Shira Levin, who got who became a bat mitzvah this weekend in Albany, despite the snow. And I know this because her mother, Susanna, wrote into us telling us why she likes the show and also, per my Twitter bio, inviting me to the bat mitzvah. Oh, it's too bad you couldn't go. Yeah, well, I was supposed to be flying to North Carolina that day. Oh, that's right. Uh, Liel? My mazel tov is to two of my closest friends, uh, agents Dana Scully and Fox Mulder, uh, who this week returned to us after a long, long absence, making me a very happy man. And my Mazel Tov, I got a double Mazel Tov also. First of all, to the brilliantly named Zephyr Teachout, whom I knew in college, who's running for Congress, just because it's awesome that there's someone named Zephyr Teachout running for Congress. She's running from a district in uh, northern New York City, right, and in the up the Hudson Valley, I think. Also, my brother, who will be on this show in two weeks, Daniel, Daniel Oppenheimer, he's author of a new book called Exit Right, The People Who Left the Left and Reshaped the American Century. He's going to be at Book Court in Brooklyn, February 4th at 7 p.m. He also has events in Washington and Massachusetts and Austin, Texas. But if you actually want to meet a few Oppenheimers all at once, if you want to get the full or at least partial Oppenheimer experience, uh, join us at Book Court in Brooklyn on February 4th. What is a collection of Oppenheimer called? Actually, I have an answer to that. It's a triumph. A triumph of Oppenheimers. A triumph yep. of Oppenheimers. That's the mass noun for Oppenheimers. <laughs> We love mail. If you have thoughts, comments, praise, or questions for our panel of experts, send them to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. And remember, if you want to be considered for our Valentine's Day matchmaking event, send an email, or we'd actually prefer a voicemail. I think that'd be terrific, with something about yourself and something about what you're looking for in a mate. Again, the address is unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Our show is edited by Julie Subrin and produced by Sarah Ivry. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Dov Bard. Our website is tabletmag.com. Our music is by Golem. To get our newsletter, just shoot us an email and ask for it. Shalom, friends. <laughs> <laughs>